Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I'm your host, Louise Salas, and with me, as always, is my very, very talented friend who will always be the salt to my pepper, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Louise. I thought I was going to say it was the salty of Papa. And I was like, whoa. Okay. Yeah, we went, we went back in the day on that one. Yeah, for a, for a second. For a second. Yeah. <laughs> I was living in my cassette tape dreams. Oh, I loved yeah. it. That's when you could get sing, singles. What were they called? Singles. When they were just a single? No, yeah, the single, single cassettes. Yeah. But the singles. single cassettes. Uh, and they anyway. had the B-side. And they had the B-side song. <laughs> They did. <laughs> On right. records, too. I remember when we had real records and when you'd get the 45s and you had to use the little yellow discs. Do you remember the little yellow, yellow discs you had to use? So that I can produce play. that for you right now. We still listen to records in my house. Oh, that's awesome. We don't have, yeah. we don't have a record player. No. No, it's the best. Cool. It's the only time you'll ever listen to an album all the way through. Yeah, yeah well. And, but do you know the worst listening is literally the cassettes. They were the worst. Because if you listen to them, Dave had a car. Here we go off the rails right off the bat. Dave had a car in Hawaii, and he it had a cassette player. And I was like, oh, I got all the old cassettes out and threw them in. It sounded terrible because of the machine itself. It was like the whole time. That's why you're anyway. supposed to put that little that little lube on the memory of the oil, and your oil is the real the real. I don't know what you're lubing, but okay. You did. It looked like a magic <laughs> marker, and then you could wet the tape again. It was called something. All right, we're off the rails. Let's go back to the show, shall we? Although I so, do miss taping the radio. I'll stop now. That'll be the two fingers. Yeah, so, and then okay. you get your song and you make a mixtape for the person that you loved. That was real love. That was real love and dedication. You listen to the radio for like seven days to get the songs you wanted from beginning to end, and you presented that mix. But you could never get the beginning because the DJ would you always could. talk through the no, beginning. No, you could because you like literally... That was, that's what I'm saying. That was true love. When you got the beginning and the end of the song on a mixtape for the person that you loved from the radio and you handed them this mixtape with all your bubble handwriting and all the things, that is love. Now, I, they send you a song or whatever now like uh, on your phone. That's not love. That's just browsing. There's no dedication to the radio or clicking the button or anything. Oh. I love that this show apparently is not dedicated to a format either. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. Funny All though. Right. I don't care. All right, fine. It's too funny. All right. It is funny. All right. So we're going to go back to the show now to our regular scheduled programming. Uh, <laughs> I love cassette tapes, Jess, Gina, but I also love Thanksgiving. I know. I know. It's going to be controversial. And we're starting off the show controversial on a controversial note. I know that. But I do love Thanksgiving. I love to cook a huge meal with all the traditional fixings, or at least what I call traditional fixings. Um, I eat too much turkey. I drink too much wine. You know, you know how we do. We gobble till we wobble. We've been doing that for a yeah. couple of years now. Um, yeah. But did you know turkey didn't become a popular centerpiece of the holiday until long after Thanksgiving was a meal, right? So if I wanted to uh, make a meal that paid tribute to a truly traditional Thanksgiving meal from, say, 1621, my menu would have have to include goose, chestnuts, shellfish, and succotash. Great. And considering colonists didn't have potatoes, butter, or flour typically, um, that would mean no mashed potatoes, no pumpkin pie, and definitely no green bean casserole because you're not going to get those little crispy, like, onions anywhere. <laughs> Do you remember the fake onions that come in the can? Yeah, that's great. How are you, my friend? 
I don't even know how we're friends. <laughs> I like, never make that dish. It's just a traditional you mean Thanksgiving the, you mean dish. You mean the, the French onion? It says French onion on it. And if you read it, it says made with potato. <laughs> it's, fr- it's, it's, it's onion flavored it's- potato chips. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's, I don't actually make that dish. But it, there. But my point is, you couldn't do that in, 19, in 1621, apparently. Obviously, if we were going to do that meal today, we couldn't do those things on our menu. Um, but okay, what? but we're going to get real now. But we're going to get real real. And but isn't invite- oyster stuffing, isn't oyster stuffing, if, all right, I realize we're not talking about the, the I'll stop. But isn't oyster stuffing, like um, what they call it in the South, oyster dressing, that's probably one of the most traditional things on your Thanksgiving plate. Yeah, I don't know. Poor Kim's going to have a lot of editing on this episode. No so. way. Keep this in, Kim. This is valuable information. <laughs> People might need to know about oyster dressing. Oyster dressing is stuffing in the South. But you know what they really need to know is they need to know the real story of Thanksgiving. Yes. So that's why we have today's designated drinker. He's a professor of history of George Washington University. Probably sorry that he's on the show and he hasn't even started yet. But he is also the <laughs> author of This Land is Their Land, the Wapanag. Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. He is none other than David J. Silverman. Welcome to the show, David. Thank <laughs> you. I, I love the idea of someone taping this and sending it to their loved one. <laughs> yes. Okay, hit the two buttons now. <laughs> so funny. Um, so, David, what do you think that 1621 menu? Was I even close? Did my research get me close? Goose, uh, chestnuts, n- n- shellfish, and not, not far. I don't know if there were actual chestnuts, um, but there were certainly nuts of one sort or another. Well, there's I think definitely could... some nuts in this room. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there'd be something akin to succotash, yeah. Some kind of cornmeal stew with beans and... Some protein or another, and yeah, yeah, not not too far off. Well, good. At least my research got me somewhere close. Right. At least within the realm of reality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the realm of possibility, rather. Um, so most of us know what our American history books have taught us about Thanksgiving, um, and I know we're going to dive into some the real story behind a lot of that. Um, but what I'd like to just back up just for a second and. Let our and let our listeners know a little bit more about you, um, about your journey and what where you've gotten and what 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 inspired you to write the book. So, well, I've been researching, teaching, writing about Native American and Colonial American history for the better part of twenty years. And the first book I wrote um, back in two thousand five focused on the Wampanoag people of the island of Martha's Vineyard. Um, which has just uh, fairly recently uh, <laughs> entered the news again. Oh, yeah. Um, well, isn't, it, isn't that a, yeah, ironic to say that? Um, yeah, and in the course of, of writing that book and you know, doing other research along, uh, along the way, I had lots of conversations with Native people um, about their views of history and, and the present and the like. And one of the issues that kept coming up, not at my prompting, but at, at their prompting, um, was how hard Thanksgiving season was for them, and especially for their children in schools. And what Wampanoag people told me is that, you know, here was a national holiday in a country that belongs to them equally as much as anyone else, um, that at best made light of their, their colonization, their dispossession, um, and that at, at worst celebrated it. Yeah. And what was even harder for the kids in school, you know, because the kids, as these lessons were being propagated by their teachers, authority figures, let's, uh, 
Let's keep them light. Sure. Um, they were almost, those lessons were almost invariably followed by the teachers saying that all the Wampanoags were gone. Wow. And yet, there are right Wampanoag there. kids sitting right in front of them. And, yeah. you know, the teachers couldn't recognize them as Wampanoags because they didn't look like whatever the stereotype in the teacher's head was of a Wampanoag from, you know, the 1400s. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I thought long and hard about that over, over the years. And it occurred to me as the 400th anniversary of Plymouth's founding um, was coming upon us that this was a rare opportunity for me to reach the public with what I know well. Anniversaries have this way of focusing the public's attention sure. on historical events. I could write the same book five years later or five years earlier. It wouldn't have the same resonance. Um, but it seemed to me to be an opportunity that I shouldn't miss. Wow. It, it's, it, is there a reason why you ended up with just looking at Native Americans or it just, just so happened? I mean, how did, how did you get to that, hone into that space or into that, 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 those peoples? Um, I was always interested in peoples whose voices were, and experiences were underrepresented in history from my college days and, and probably from even before that. Um, but as I was getting more educated in history and um, deciding to become a professional historian, what I realized is that the population in colonial American history who was really underrepresented, and there's lots of them, by the way, let's, let's keep in mind, yeah. but it, that population was Native people who, after all, were here first yeah. um, and were most of the people throughout most of colonial American history. And for that matter, they controlled the vast majority of the continent well into the 19th century. And so it, it seemed to me um, that, that their experiences, their stories should be much more centered in our tellings of American history. I've dedicated my career to telling those stories. It's a, it, it, it's quite the undertaking, obviously. I mean, it's, I can't even imagine uh, what the, it shouldn't be controversial, right? But to tell the truth, to tell <laughs> a real truth or another, I mean, every history is written by the winner. Is that what that is? And it, the, the victor, um, I can imagine it has, it's come back. It's come with some pushback. At two different levels. Um, so one level might not be totally expected. Though most Native people that I know um, want to see their history represented in, in a mainstream U.S. history curriculum, they're also uncomfortable with non-Native people telling it. Sure. Um, because that in and of itself is a product of colonialism. I, I am interested in them because my country colonized them and made them my countrymen and women. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm always cognizant of that as I'm, I, now I, no, I don't subscribe to the idea that you have to descend from the people you write about. We have sure. people who study French history who aren't French. We have people who study British history who aren't British. Uh, same principle applies to Native American history, but I understand the dynamic. But the, you know, what you were alluding to is that a sizable portion, not only of the American public, but of but people around the world and people throughout history have thought that the purpose of a history education is to create little patriots for whatever nation, tribe, you know, religion that they're a part of. The, the idea that a history education should teach you to be critical of the society in which you live is a very modern notion. And the pushback that we're seeing today is actually more consistent with the way humans have behaved throughout time than not. Yeah. We have come to take for granted over really only since the 1960s um, that 
a history education should teach you to be critical of your country and to understand its past warts and all. That principle really upsets a lot of people. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Especially, I mean, if, if, if you think about, if you're talking about in the 1960s and even, I mean, I, I can't even say that. I would say even currently, I'd have to talk, speak to my own space that we see it today. We see people pushing back really hard on and and near, it nearly refusing to allow for any other thinking to come into place. Yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a constant back and forth, um, and so I'm I'm always aware of that in telling this this type of history. Do too. you have do you see that in um, in the in your academic space? Do you have, is there openness? Is there, is there a... I don't experience it in my academic space, but I'm the, I'm the fortunate beneficiary of teaching at a private university in the District of Columbia. Yeah. Um, my colleagues who are at state universities um, in red states are right now under the gun by the legislatures of those states. So they're threatening to find the universities and sometimes fire the professors um, if they dare to talk about race. And yet, you know, I would contend, and you know, this book uh, certainly touches on on the subject. You can't understand uh, the history of the United States and its colonial predecessors without race being front and center. Um, yeah. It's one of the fundamental characteristics of our nation. Still to this day. To this day. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just crazy to me to think that um, we're still at a point that we can't pull back those layers and actually look at what really is there and and to to say to the point that we literally just can put blinders on and you're just not going to be able to talk about it it feels so world war Two. it feels so like uh it, 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 it's uh, definitely the opposite of progression well i think you know i think what you're seeing it's a very shrill response to pro serious progress that's been made since the 1960s yeah Th that's that's what this is and you know the question is are we going to continue with that progress or are we going to turn back the clock um, you know, to an era of, you know, segregation and history serving as propaganda um, and people who aren't white, wealthy, um, and well-positioned uh, not see seeing themselves in their own country's history. Um, yeah, I certainly don't want to live in a society like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, we see that on the women's front right now. 100%. Yeah, that's going back 1960, literally. Um, it's crazy. Wow. <laughs> wow, well, that went from cassette <laughs> to upsetting to racist in very quickly minutes. Well, it's 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 it explains Thanksgiving. I mean, like it is interesting that you're not advocating that we don't celebrate Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I, I'm not advocating whatsoever that we not celebrate Thanksgiving. What I what I do suggest in the book, though, is that this sugar-coated fairy tale that we've been propagating, especially in elementary schools. Yeah. Um, really since the late 19th and early 20th century, um, is patently false and doesn't need to be attached to the holiday. Yeah. True. It's, I, it, that's, it, my argument is, as relates to the holiday is as simple as that. It's a false history. Let's not propagate a false history. But we can still get together with family and friends and offer thanks for and what's fine. good in our lives. So yeah. Stop there. <laughs> I think that's, you know, it's interesting that not having children, I don't know that I... I don't ever remember tying it to a historical space once I got out of like elementary school. 
but my belief in it, but my belief, but my belief in it is based there. Like, or my understanding of it right. is there. It's not. I don't know that I done it in my own personal celebration or observe being observant of the holiday, which really does mean a lot of food and a lot of wine in my house, which is just celebra- being celebratory and being with friends and family. Right. But if you drive around with your eyes open to it, yeah. you'll see decorations on front lawns and storefronts of happy pilgrims and Indians yes. making friends with each other. It's funny, as you've been talking about this, I can see the cutouts, the paper cutouts from elementary school. And they had the little Indian boy and girl and they had the, mm-hmm. and had the little pilgrims. I, can, I As you're talking, I, it's exactly what's coming back in my, I remember those cutouts I put out every year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm happy that you slaughtered my family, yeah. So, um, just crazy to me. I, I, I'm just trying to think, like, is Thanksgiving like that in New York? Like, I feel like in New York, Thanksgiving is all about the parade. It's even fucking worse. We don't even care. Everyone's <laughs> like, that, growing up in New York, it was always about the Macy's Day Parade. Like, like going to the parade, watching the parade, and Santa Claus was coming at the end. And I've got to be honest with you, it's crazy to even think that that's what, <laughs> like, the teachers are like, oh, you're going to have off and you can watch the parade on TV or go to it. You know what I mean? Like, it was never about anything, I feel like, sometimes. I don't think adults it's think sad. about it much at all. I yeah. mean, I, we're conditioned to have this kind of imagery surrounding Thanksgiving yeah. as children. And then we don't question it from from that point moving forward, right? And And that's what it means to be ideologically conditioned. Yeah. Right? That you don't think critically about what it is you're doing. So, and when I ask adults, do I, I say to them, you know, do you really think a shared meal is the appropriate symbol for Native American colonial relations? <laughs> uh, almost to a person. They'll yeah. say, no. Yeah. And then I, you know, what I follow up is then why do we teach our kids this? Yeah. Generation after generation after generation. I mean, you know, the, and the, the reason is that it promotes the notion of bloodless colonialism. Yeah. You know, the, the notion that there were no... There, there were no victims along the way. Um, that it's nothing but a feel-good story that people can feel patriotic about. Yeah. But that's propaganda. That is not history. That's just propaganda. When did you, when, is there a time frame when that really started to, like, come into, is there a, a time, like, in the U.S., where, well, obviously in the U.S., that it became that sugar-coated version? It's the 19th century. Um, it You don't hear these these kinds of false histories during the 17th and 18th century. But after the United States is created, a couple of different dynamics come into play um, that bring this this false history to the fore. One is uh, Plymouth Town starts trying to drum up tourism and starts promoting this obscure religious faction, these separatists, as colonial founding fathers. Um, and, you know, they, they recruit spokesmen like John Quincy Adams to propagate this view in their speeches and, and, and in historical societies out of Boston. Um, and that gains a, a, a bit of traction. Um, some of the other dynamics that, that bring this false history uh, to the fore is that New England was losing its cultural authority in the country in the 19th century, as the country's oh, growing, yeah. um, and wanted to promote its region as oh, interesting. Th- the most essential of American regions. Now, the fact that most 
um, American orators and later historians came out of New England. You know, Harvard and Yale produced a disproportionate number of professional historians for generations. Led to a certain amount of filial pietism, you know, ancestor worship um, that that held up uh, Plymouth as as this uh, especially important place. Even though you know, Plymouth is a marginal, underpopulated, unimportant colony, it really <laughs> it really does not matter in the broad scheme of things. And all of a sudden, you know, this story brings Plymouth to the fore. Yet another factor is the kind of cultural tensions that are present in American society in the 19th century. What you're see, 19th century America, no less than America today, has enormous tensions over immigration. Mm. Except the immigrants then that people are up in arms about are Catholics, uh, disproportionately from Ireland and Germany and, you know, later from, from Italy. Yeah. Uh, and the the old school Protestants want an origin story that makes their ancestors the progenitors of all things American, democracy, religious freedom, um, and the like. And the you know the Thanksgiving myth, if you will, um, certainly achieves that end. Wow, it's just it's it it is thinking differently, and you're right. You know, the other day, or un, not understanding your own space, right? You like that acceptance space. The other day, when we were talking, we were talking about the fact that I love wine, and when people talk about what you, what kind of wines do you like, which and I and I said, oh, and I, what my answer is is I like, oh no, I like old world versus new world wines. I like the old vines versus you know, and but I use that term. And you quickly made me realize that I was using something that I didn't even realize that was a negative space. And that, which it mean, like we were discussing about the fact that it made it seem as if the people were, it was only a new world once the rest of us got here. Right. I mean, you know, the, so part of the Thanksgiving myth, right, is the notion that the, the pilgrims cross the Atlantic and arrive in a new world or wilderness. Well, if twenty thousand years is new, I guess I guess it's new. You know, I, I, human. We just discovered it, we the collective yeah. you know scholarly. We there was an archaeological discovery uh, of human uh, of of human remains twenty two thousand years old. Wow! Um, in in the last several months, so yeah, you know, there's nothing new about the America except the Americas, except to Europeans. Yeah. Um, and it's not a wilderness. It's a place that's full of civilizations. To call it new and to call it a wilderness is purposefully to devalue the indigenous people who lived here yeah. and to suggest that their death and dispossession didn't matter yeah. and was in, in the interest of progress. Yeah. That's what, when I realized it when, you were, when we were chatting the other day, and that's where I was like, oh, my God, I use it all the time. And I don't even realize, like I don't, I, I, I obviously did not piece that together. It's, but you're, you're 100% right. I was like, oh, wow. We're conditioned to talk and think that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the good news is we can all learn new tricks, right, Gina? Uh, yeah. Also, I'm going to just go away for Thanksgiving <laughs> to someplace else <laughs> and fuck the holiday. <laughs> I'll eat turkey 364 other days of the year or something. <laughs> this this has been a very eye-opening um, holiday season for us kicking off uh, right now. I have to be honest with you. I am, like, not sure. All right. 
Here's what I am sure about, though. I'm going to give you a very valuable trick on how to make a really fun um, syrup that you can keep for your holiday season. This is one of my favorite syrups. I've been making it forever. It's called A&R syrup, which is apples and raisins. And there's just something about mixing those two things together that's like really wonderful. But raisins can be a little bit tricky using them in um, a cocktail syrup. So I'm just going to kind of walk you through how to do that, right? So it says you're going to use a, about a quarter cup of raisins. And you can use any raisins. You want white raisins, you know, you found some fancy raisins in a store, it's great. But you, what you want to do with your raisins is you want to just mash them a little bit. And now you're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You're just pressing this in there, it's not doing anything. You are correct. So this is the trick. Put the raisins in first, then add your sugar, because your sugar is going to give you that nice coarseness that you're looking for. And then you'll be able to mash open your raisins a little bit better. Don't do this in a Vitamix or a blender or something like that because what's gonna happen is you're gonna spill all those little seeds inside and that's not what you're looking to do, okay? So you're gonna get that in there. See, it's nice and sticky and, and delicious. Um, so you're gonna put your apples, your, um, your raisins in there, your sugar. We're gonna add a little bit of cinnamon. You can add apples, pomegranate, whatever you like. But here is my favorite other little part of this. Apples raisins, pomegranates, all of it goes so well with beer. And all beers, beers that you like to drink, you know, dark beers, light beers, it's kind of really personal. So today we're gonna use a little um, Pilsner uh, locally here in Washington, D.C. So we're gonna pour that in, about a cup. So basically, you're making a simple syrup with beer. And for all you hop heads out there, something that's super great is using anything with like a nice citra hop to it and just use it in place of water. So if you want to make a beer syrup, it's just one-to-one -one ratio, beer to sugar. And don't leave it too long in your refrigerator, otherwise you'll be making a new version of beer. All right, so now you have um, everything in here. So what you're going to do is you're going to put this over a medium heat for about, you know, 15-ish minutes. You're going to keep stirring. Beer loves to, like, implode a little bit over on the stove. So stirring is the trick, and you'll be left with this beautiful syrup. Now. I put this in the recipe, but realize what you need to do. When you strain, you're gonna leave this on your stove and when it comes to room temperature, then you strain this syrup. Leave it covered, room temperature. Don't work with hot syrup. We're not trying to do that this holiday season. So catch me on the other side for the cocktail. Okay, that is my tip for the day. All right, and where are they gonna go get that tip? You're gonna go to designateddrinker.show for that tip, trick, and how-to, or you can follow us on Instagram at Designated Drinker, and you can watch it for yourself. Exactly, exactly. And you can even you can even DM us and get uh, direct hits right to Gina. You can slide into my DMs <laughs> with questions about your holiday cocktails. <laughs> so Gina, that was really, really easy. And you said definitely let it rest on the stove you so it rests so that it like covered. Yeah, covered. Covered. Covered, rest, room temperature, then strain. Yeah. Because you don't want to put it away hot, right? We don't want to put it away hot, but more importantly, you want to give it time to let the apples like seep out the rest of their sugar. And it doesn't happen in the cooking process, it happens after. That's why apple pie is really good out of the oven. But then why when it sits for like, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, a day or something in rest and you cut into it and it's thicker. It's only because the sugars have let out. Gotcha. So it makes it like really, really yummy. Yum. Perfect. Perfect. Not a day, like half a day. All right. 
So like Gina said, go to designateddrinker.show to get the tips, tricks, and how-tos. Hit us up on Instagram, or you can even scroll down into your episode notes, and we'll have all the links to those things. And and we'll make sure that there's a link to David's book um, and so you can get it hot in your hands, right off the press, just like that hot apple pie. <laughs> all right. Well, now I'm not sure if that's American either, so <laughs> we'll move on. Thank God my father is from Italy. I don't have to claim there were nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this brings us to the end of part one with David J. Silverman, professor of history at George Washington University and the author of This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and The Troubled History of Thanksgiving. Um, but I know if you're anything like Gina or me, one round is never enough. So go top off that drink and uh, get ready for part two of this episode as we continue our boozy banter. And Gina shares a delicious cocktail recipe that we all know you'll be thankful for. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.